and, and uh, glad to be there. So, um, I don't know if Peter said it as strongly as, as he probably wanted to, um, but maybe I can. Uh, <clears throat> I don't get down on uh, families that do public school. I really don't. But I, I don't want your kids in public school, to be honest with you, uh, because of the, the nature of the indoctrination that is going on in the schools. Um, I don't know. When I was in public school, I didn't have any peers that were wholesome, that were encouraging me in my faith. I had no teachers. Uh, well, I had one teacher that was encouraging me in my faith, um, but he was like the most controversial man in our city. Uh, and uh, so, you know, Ephesians 5, of course, places the responsibility of Christian ed on the parents, the, the discipleship of their kids on the parents and all of that. And, uh, and so, I mean, if you send your kids to public school and that's the only option that you have um, or you think you have, I would like to talk to you and help you get your kids in a context where they're receiving Christian education, that God is um, at the center of their science, their English, and everything else. If he could be at the center of math, if it's possible, uh, <clears throat> we want to make that happen. But uh, we, you know, the, as, as Peter said, they want to help you. And we as Calvary Chapel, we want to encourage you and help you. Uh, we would like to help you homeschool. We'd like to help you private school. We'd like your kids to be in Christian education so that all of life is um, couched in the theology of the Bible. Yeah. So anyway, um, come talk to me. Go talk to Peter. We'll, we'll see what we can do. All right? Okay. Uh, so you guys can be praying. Uh, um, we prayed for Vic Ray Thursday night. He has pneumonia. Um, I was getting some conflicting uh, reports on his health, one that he was doing well, one that he wasn't. Uh, now he is being uh, taken to the hospital today. Uh, so we want to be praying for, for him. And also we want to continue praying for the school. And uh, we'll do all of that a little bit after we uh, introduce the, what we're doing this morning. So last week, uh, we discussed uh, false prophets and false uh, teachers and how to identify them, how to look for the fruit that they display. And um, uh, I had told you guys, uh, please be mature enough to come chat with me if uh, you disagree with anything that I've said or you have questions. Um, I had some questions uh, later in the week. Uh, somebody was mature enough to come and talk. Um, but I don't know if anybody's been stewing all week. If I named uh, one of the names that they have um, respected in the past. So please don't stew. Uh, come chat with me and uh, we'll, uh, we'll go from there. And if you have questions about other people that I may not have mentioned, um, I'm not afraid to say anything, really. So um, <clears throat> I'll tell you the truth, um, but I will try to uh, bring the discussion back to the scriptures if they err or not. <clears throat> so anyhow, yeah, before that, before the discussion of false prophets and teachers, Jesus addressed the wide gate and the narrow gate and how the majority of all people will pass through the wide gate that leads to destruction. This morning, Jesus will address a population that believes <clears throat> it's entering the narrow gate but will fall short. In fact, it's a population that most Christians in Western culture would think is passing through the narrow gate but they are not. Uh, and if we evaluate them according to the scriptures, which we must do with all things, 
Um, it's just not possible for them to do that because the way of salvation has been laid down clearly in the scriptures. And uh, we're not permitted to uh, take the narrow gate and widen it. Uh, Jesus has, as it were, set the posts of the gate. They're fixed. And uh, he decides how and who uh, gets into his kingdom. Amen? So this morning, we're going to address uh, that. So... um, Some of you might think you're in a Catholic church this morning. I'd like you to stand up again uh, for the reading of God's word. You are in a Catholic church, little c, uh, which means universal. We are part of the universal body of Christ, so in that sense, we are. Uh, But when that term was first used in church history, there wasn't the Catholic church as we know it today. So we are little c, Catholic, universal church. Some of you are probably really confused by that. That's what Catholic means, is universal. So let's read chapter 7, verse 21, and I am in chapter 5. Then you would have really been confused. Chapter 7, verse 21, and I'm in Isaiah. Goodness, I'm in Isaiah with my one ribbon because I'm teaching Isaiah on Thursday nights. And I just flipped and thought, should I be the pastor here? (laughs) Peter should have kept preaching. All right, Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders, that is, miracles in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for your word. It's definitely not always what we want to hear. We don't always want to weigh the implications of what you say. But nothing came out of your mouth that was untrue. You, you always spoke truth. You couldn't speak otherwise. So Lord, I pray that as you speak to us, as you teach us from the word, that our, our minds would be in agreement our hearts would be aligned with yours. And instead of finding disagreement with what you've said, that your words would concern us, uh, perhaps for our own, our own selves, uh, but for those who confess your lordship but do not do according to the Father's will. Lord, we don't want them to be lost. And so help us to take your word seriously and to act upon it, Lord. And Lord, we pray for Vic this morning Lord, I pray that you would intervene in his body and that you would stop his pneumonia, Lord, and that you would just heal him, be with him. We pray also through this that his his heart would be stayed on you, he would trust you, that you'd give him peace, Lord. And the same as his bride, just grant her your grace, especially as she's going to be traveling up to Morton today and recovering the trailer. And um, Yeah, just, just hold them together. And Lord, we also pray for um, not just the, the Christian school as it's getting organized and, and finding teachers and, and uh, getting their footing, but Lord, that you would move on the hearts of parents uh, in regard to your word, especially from Ephesians chapter 6 and Deuteronomy 6, and Lord, their hearts would be to give their kids Jesus in all things. And um, so just bless that work, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Turn back with me, if you would, to verse 21. 
verse 21. Again, I have my text on the screen because I know we're at Calvary Chapel. Many of you have a thousand children and uh, you are trying to train children as you're paying attention and I don't want you to lose your spot in the scriptures as you're um, helping kids sit still and be quiet. Fair enough? I'm not trying to uh, take away your responsibility to have the word. So don't let us catch you without a Bible. Unless you're new, we'll give you three Sundays and then there's church discipline, okay? Yeah. Okay, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Not everyone who says. So there is a population of people who even though they profess the lordship of Jesus, he says, they're not, they're not entering the kingdom. Uh, they're not coming in. And Jesus has already informed us in verse 13 that the majority of all people will enter the gate, the, the wide gate. They will take the path that leads to destruction. But there's this other population within that population that thinks they're entering the gate. They think they are, but they're not. They're confessing, but they will be excluded. So first, I would like to make it clear from Jesus' words that he's not minimizing a confession of his lordship. He's not trying to remove the value of that or the importance of it. Uh, It is to be exalted in the scriptures. So we want to understand what he means to confess and what he doesn't mean. So first, the confession of Jesus' lordship, it is necessary. It is necessary. Paul says this in Romans 10, 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, understand it's identical with uh, uh, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And the majority of all modern translations have rendered that so that it makes sense to the modern mind. I don't know why the New King James didn't catch up with that. But, and Paul is saying that this confession, it's connected to the contingency there if someone must confess. It's necessary. But we must be careful to point out what Jesus and Paul are not saying. They're not saying that if someone just says the words like abracadabra, Jesus is Lord, they will be saved. He's not saying that. That's not what this means. They're not magic words. It's not like open sesame and the narrow gate flies open for someone. To confess in the context here means to confess publicly, that is to acknowledge the truth of Jesus' lordship. And really it means to publicly confess, to make a public confession that he's not just Lord, but he's Lord of all, as the apostle said in Acts 10.36. And then we must understand what was meant by the word Lord and what it meant to the Jewish mind of that time and to the Greek, because we have both audiences. We have a Hebrew Jewish audience in Matthew 7, and we have a mixed audience in the book of Romans, both Jew and Greek Roman and others. The Greek word for Lord is kurios, and it has a range of meaning, all of which are determined by the context. Now, the Jew who learned the scriptures um, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where the word uh, referred to God himself, the Jew understood that word in that context. To use the word kurios meant to him, we're talking about God now, okay? And so no Jew would openly confess that Jesus was Lord unless he truly believed that Jesus was somehow, in some way, of the same nature, of the same substance as God. 
So the confession was no small matter to the Jew. It's a big deal. In fact, the very confession that Jesus was Lord was considered blasphemous okay, by the Jewish leaders of Israel. And in fact, that is why the high priest, he tore his clothes when Jesus affirmed his deity through the high priest's question. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 64, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Messiah, the son of God? And Jesus said, you said it. It is as you said. And then Jesus claimed to be the person who's actually prophesied about in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Jesus says that he's the one to whom the ancient of days, a reference to the Father, gives the whole earth for his everlasting dominion. He's presented to the ancient of days. And the ancient of days, God the Father says, here's the earth, it's yours, now rule over it. And he will with an everlasting dominion. At this time, when Jesus says, I'm the guy in Daniel 7, the high priest tears his clothes and then he condemns Jesus to death. Why is he so upset? Seems a little extreme. Well, it really has everything to do with Jesus' answer about being the son of God. And some would say, well, what's wrong with that? Aren't we all the children of God? Not like Jesus. The believer is a child of God by adoption. Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, we are of no real relation to the Father. John tells us that through faith, Jesus actually gives us the right to become the children of God. We're not becoming something we already are. We become the children of God by the authority of Christ. We're adopted into the family. Jesus, on the other hand, he is the only begotten of the Father. What difference does that make? Well, if you're a child of another man, and you are, you are of the same nature. You're the same substance as that man. But if you are the son of God, begotten of God, whose nature do you have? God. You're of the same substance as God. In fact, the Greek word for essence or substance is used in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, which says that Jesus is the exact imprint, the expression of God's substance. And Paul says that in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, Colossians 2, 9. Now, the King James Version and the New King James Version translate the word for deity as Godhead, which is an older way of saying deity. The problem is the word Godhead, some assume that Paul is talking about the Trinity dwelling in Jesus in bodily form. That's not what that phrase means. The statement means that, that God, or Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. And 1 Timothy 3.16 says, great is the mystery of godliness, for God was manifested in the flesh, in human form. You see, when the high priest said, are you the son of God? He's saying, are you saying that you're like the father in substance? Are you sharing his nature because a son is like his father in substance? And Jesus said, you said it. And then in a rage, he condemned Jesus to death for what he thought was blasphemy. Dangerous to claim yourself to be God, right? And then they crucified him. But it wasn't just dangerous for Jesus. It was dangerous for every Jew who confessed Jesus is Lord. It was for that confession that they stoned Stephen in Acts 7. What an ugly scene that was. So it's no minor confession. But what about the Greek or the Roman or anyone else in the empire who belonged to that, you know, pluralistic culture? 
For them, this language of confessing Jesus as Lord came into conflict with what we call the imperial cult of Rome, where everyone in the Roman Empire, minus the Jew, they were given an exception. They were required to burn incense to the emperor, who they believed was divine. He was one of the state gods. They would offer incense at a temple that was dedicated to Caesar, where they would take, rather, where they would take incense and they would throw it into an altar of fire, and they would say, Caesar is Lord. That language sound familiar? Caesar is Lord. Initially, as Christianity was being spread across the Roman Empire, Christianity was thought to be a subset of Judaism. And therefore, the church enjoyed the exception granted to the Jews to abstain from the imperial cult. But it wasn't long before Rome caught on and discovered that Christianity wasn't a subset, really, of Judaism. And they also discovered that the Christian God, who is Jesus Christ, was a rival deity, not only to the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods, but to the emperor himself. Okay? We need to understand, though, in, with that, the church did not have a problem with Caesar being emperor. They respected his government, but they would not do, what they would not do is they would not recognize his deity, the early Christians would not go to the temple dedicated to Caesar and walk past the place where they had the incense and grab some and then walk past the fire and say, Caesar is Lord, and make that offering to him. And that began to incense the emperors. So it became a matter of honor the emperor or else. And so the church encountered the wrath of the emperors, of course, beginning with Nero, then to Domitian, and finally with Diocletian before Christianity was made legal in the fourth century. So for the first 300 years in the Roman Empire, the church was the enemy of the state for this very reason. Caesar is not Lord. He's a king, he's an emperor, but he is not Lord God. And we will not do such a blasphemous thing as honor a man as God, unless it is the God-man Jesus Christ, right? So to confess Jesus as Lord within these historical and cultural contexts was, it was no minor confession, not for the Greek, not for the Jew. Now, of course, we who live in the Western Christian culture, we have a little bit of trouble identifying with that. Um, how many have heard of people pinching incense to Biden? Uh, well, I mean, figuratively speaking. <laughs> yeah, I would say that those that uh, the Christians are brothers and sisters living in Iran or Afghanistan, they can identify with this a little more. Making a public confession of Christ is very dangerous in those places. Be that as it may, we need to understand clearly what was meant by this confession of lordship. It has everything to do with deity and prerogative. It is a recognition of Jesus' deity and his divine prerogative to rule over the person. You understand? I am confessing with my mouth that Jesus is Lord God, and he has every prerogative to rule over my life. That's what this is about. Back to our text. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. It's not simply a profession of lordship, but the one who lives in accord with his lordship, that prerogative to rule. Jesus came as Lord, and he was teaching heaven's will. So by confessing that someone is Lord implies that you have exchanged your will for theirs. Every servant and slave in the Roman Empire understood that concept. Every slave owner understood that concept. 
To call them Lord is to exchange my will for theirs, to adopt theirs. Jesus is saying that someone's creed must be consistent with their conduct. They say it, it may not be enough. He's saying that if I am their Lord, it will be demonstrated, demonstrated by their obedience, by living according to the Father's will. So we have been discussing the Father's will in the last couple chapters of Jesus' sermon. So if you need some kind of litmus, uh, there you have it. But in the text here, Jesus is saying, they call me Lord, but in practice, they deny my prerogative. Those who say, but do not do, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think that that should bring a little sobriety to us. Because in the culture and practice of Western Christianity, many believe that if someone says what is called the sinner's prayer, they're somehow born again, as if the sinner's prayer is some kind of magic formula. In fact, I think too many people treat it as a magic formula. Okay. Um, by the way, um, the, that magic formula is not found in the scriptures. You guys have heard me say that before. How many of you have searched for it since I've said that? No, nobody's willing to look. <laughs> it was invented by man, and over the last 60 years or so, the follow-up of those who have said the sinner's prayer to be saved, the, mass, the vast majority of them, like 90%, do not live in accord with their confession. You know, Billy Graham lamented the fact that the follow-up of those who came to his crusades and other events, um, that they were recording over time a 96% fall-away rate. All that time, all that effort, all that money, and we were, of all that we're confessing, only 4% were continuing on with Christ. That's a terrible reality, isn't it? It's terrible. <clears throat> yeah. And then others, because of this same methodology, I would say, they put too much stock in the sinner's prayer, and they put their hope in the fact that a loved one, though they currently live like the world, are saved because they said the sinner's prayer. Understand, we actually contradict Jesus by believing this because he says that only those who do his Father's will are going to enter the kingdom. Now, it is true that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Scripture couldn't be more clear on that. And that works have nothing to do with getting saved. But works, obedience, have everything to do with being saved. You see, obedience is not, it's not how we get saved. Obedience is the evidence that we are saved, that we have been saved. Uh, obedience is consistent with our confession, and it honors Jesus' prerogative. Obedience honors his prerogative. James tells us that, he says, hey, I'll, I'll prove that I'm saved by my works. Let me prove it to you. He says, just watch me. This is why we wait after someone's confession for the fruit of the Lord's lordship to be manifested in their life before we have any real confidence that they're saved. If they have a confession but no fruit, I, I'm not confident that they're saved. And by saying that, I'm not promoting the idea that someone has to be perfectly obedient to the scriptures, you know, that they never can stumble, they can never sin. Uh, the reality is those who are contrite because of personal sin, and subsequently repent, they're living the normal Christian life, right? How many guys sin? Okay. It's those who sin without contrition, those who sin without repentance, they're not living the Christian life at all. That's the concern. But I think there's something even more sobering in Jesus's words. He does not say that those who live like the devil will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. He says, 
but those who do not do the will of my Father. I mean, we like to reserve excluding people from heaven who in our eyes are sinister, morbid, and downright wicked, right? But Jesus says that those who are not committed to the will of God, those are the ones that will be excluded also. They're in that same population. So someone by all appearances could be a good person. They can be a fine citizen and a friend. They can be charitable and they can be benevolent, pure in conduct and speech, even attend church regularly. But if they do not do the Father's will, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember, Jesus is the one that said, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it, verse 14. So let's be careful not to make the way easier than it is. If we do, people will fall short and we will have contributed to their fall. Oh, you're just fine. You've confessed. You're okay. And then they happily slip through the wide gate and we are complicit with their fall. And I believe that churches are filled with people who are falling short, okay? And the only evidence of God's will being honored in their life is that they attend church. They're hearers of the word, but they're not doers of it, as James says. And so really, as James says, they're self-deceived into thinking that they're okay when they're not okay. They confess that Jesus is Lord as they worship among us, but their heart really is far from him. You see, loving God, the greatest commandment, with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you know, living their life for the glory of God is not their driving force. Their life really is characterized by unfaithfulness because they say, but they do not do. They are entering the wide gate that leads to destruction. And happily so, because Western Christian tradition has said that everything is just fine. You guys have been with me through the Sermon on the Mount for the last few months. Everything is not fine in Western culture. Everything is not fine. We've widened the gate and it's killing people. It's not just those who live like the world that should be worried. Those who confess but do not do, they're on the same path. But nowadays, what was an obvious concern are not so much anymore. Uh, We have begun to celebrate as a culture more and more and more immorality, even in the church. It's going to be interesting to have... uh, Schlemmen come back to our church this fall. You guys remember Alan Schlemmen being here from Stand to Reason? He's coming back this fall and he's going to be talking about the hot issues right now with, with transgender ideology and homosexuality and all of those things. And the, the gap between the truth and Western culture is going to become obvious even more. You know, we look at obvious things like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Paul says, Do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what's celebrated in Western culture in this text? He says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Those are the ones to us in classical evangelical churches that go, that's obviously uh, entering into the wide gate. But if we combine Jesus' teaching with Paul's teaching, we come to this conclusion. Those who are passive concerning God's will and those who are actively rebelling against God's will, they're all grouped together. They're grouped together. None of them are better off than the other. All of them must repent. They all must confess Christ as Lord and they must all commit themselves to the will of God. Nothing else will do. Now, whenever I 
teach stuff like this. Some people say, well, yeah, what about the thief on the cross? You know, he believed and didn't have time to obey and bear fruit. He wasn't even baptized. So true. Good point. If you're a thief on a cross, what does that have to do with us? We're not fastened to a cross with no time to commit to God's will. We have time to live for his glory. We have time. Yeah, there's theological implications from the thief on the cross and Jesus' affirmation to him. But that's really not the point. That's not normative in the scriptures, is it? I don't think so. Today, regardless of your state, it's the day to live for God. While we have life and breath, all of which God gave you for that purpose. Let's move on. In light of what Jesus said about false prophets in the previous section, he says this. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? The word of faith movement, that's going to be them on the day of judgment. I guarantee you. Okay. They fit the bill perfectly. They do. Now, that day uh, is probably a reference to the day of judgment because in the original language, the definite article comes before day. I know it doesn't even show up in the English if they threw it in there. You go, that the day, uh, we would just lose our minds. But it's in the Greek text, and what it, it's, it's emphasizing the day. Jesus is referring to the day of judgment. He's looking forward to that time. And on that day, not a few, but many will make their confession to Jesus, saying, Lord, Lord. And then what they will do is they will lay before him what they believe are the redeeming qualities, the redeeming works, things that they've done in his name, prophesying, casting out demons, and working miracles. Now, this whole business about doing things in his name, it's a way of saying that they did it in Jesus' authority and, and for his cause. So many today say that they're teaching with Christ's authority. When I listen to false teachers, they love to say, God told me. God revealed this to me. Thus saith the Lord. They use all of this biblical language. And then if they're not saying something that the scriptures have already said, they say something that is completely nuts. Completely nuts. So many of them today are teaching with Christ's authority. They say they are. Casting out demons, working miracles in Christ's name. But Jesus says that they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They teach heresy as God's word, always claiming to have revelation, but contradicting his word. All of these bogus exorcisms. And then as we learn from Deuteronomy 13, just because someone performs a miracle doesn't mean that they've performed it through Christ and his power. Okay? They're not really doing the will of the Father. They're just throwing Jesus' name out there for justification. As they elevate themselves and teaching false doctrines in, the, in his name, all the while peddling the word of God for dishonest gain. I can't think of a word of faith teacher that has any kind of popularity that's not making bank on the people of God. They know how to bring in the money. Okay. Yeah. These are wolves in sheep's clothing. And Jesus says that they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. <clears throat> so those who confess that Jesus is Lord, but do not do the Father's will, and those who fraudulently use Jesus' name, on the day of judgment, they will be, to be told to depart from him. Now look, there's only one place to depart from Jesus on the day of judgment. Just one place. 
It's outer darkness. That's concerning. But really, it's Jesus' one statement that I think is most concerning. He says, I mean, you've come to me with all this, these credentials, but I've never even known you. I don't know you. People always ask me about those who once confessed Christ, but went off on the deep end. They say, are, are, they, are they saved? They ask this about people who professed Christ and then went into the world and never come back, never came back, or confessed Christ and actually denied him, or they were in some kind of ministry that started off on the right foot and then they became a heretic or a false prophet. What about them? Were they saved? My response typically comes from Jesus' words here. I try not to make anything up. I answer this way because Jesus, who possesses all knowledge, both past and future, says that he never knew them, that is, in a salvific sense. Of course, he knows who they are, but in the context of his salvation, he, he doesn't. In 2 Timothy 2.19 says that, that he knows everyone who belongs to him before they even come to him, he knows. And he knows them also in eternity. You remember when Paul was in Corinth <clears throat> and you know, persecution was heating up and the Lord came to Paul and said, don't be afraid. He says, I have many people in this city because he knows. None of them were saved yet, but he knows. He knows those who are his before they come to him and he knows them in eternity. I mean, in Ephesians, he, he sees his people seated with him in heavenly places, even when they're not even there yet. He knows. So no, I do not believe they were ever saved. Otherwise, Jesus would have said, I knew them, but they fell away. He says, no, I never, ever knew them. I never did. So what about us? We've just confessed Jesus's lordship in our singing, but is our conduct consistent with our creed? Are we constantly evaluating our lives according to God's word? We might say, are we bowing to Christ's prerogative to rule over us? Have we looked carefully at his word and then by his grace, daily, perpetually, trying to align ourselves with it? Are we intentionally exchanging our will for his? Are we doing that? Or are we just focusing on everyone else who is not? You understand? Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Sounded like a karate move. Yeah.